This podcast is brought to you by the Administrative Committee of the Presbyterian Church in America, promoting the unity, purity, and progress of the church. Learn more about the Administrative Committee and support its work at pcaac.org. This is Gifts and Graces. Each episode, we bring you a seminar, sermon, or discussion from church leaders across the country and around the world designed to promote the unity, purity, and progress of the church. All Christians have communion in each other's gifts and graces, says the Westminster Confession. So on this podcast, we help you and your church benefit from the gifts and graces of other parts of Christ's body. Each year at General Assembly, we host an assembly-wide seminar with a panel discussing a topic of timely importance. Sometimes these panels are members of a study committee sharing the fruit of their work. Other times, leaders with a variety of opinions gather to share a specific focus. Here is the panel on sexual brokenness in a fallen world from June 2016 at the PCA General Assembly in Mobile, Alabama. My name is Derek Halverson. I'm the president of Covenant College, and it's our privilege every year to organize General Assembly seminars. Uh, And we're particularly delighted this year um, to have uh, three gentlemen with us this morning to speak on sexual brokenness in a fallen world. Uh, As a reformed academic institution, uh, we are enthusiastic about engaging uh, important uh, pertinent issues Uh, with theological fidelity and intellectual rigor uh, and a healthy dose of humility. Um, And so we're we're pleased uh, that these gentlemen are going to take up an issue that's of importance, I think, uh, to all of us. So our speakers this morning are David Strain uh, from First Presbyterian Church of Jackson, Mississippi, uh, Tim Geiger, the executive director of Harvest USA, and Alan Edwards, who's pastor of the Kiskey Valley Presbyterian Church outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So would you all please welcome our panelists this morning. Well, we are uh, so glad for an opportunity to, uh, to speak and to share um, our, our ministries, our lives, and uh, God's Word uh, into a difficult, complex, and, uh, 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 well, I don't know if there are better words than difficult and complex uh, issue in the life of our church and our, in our culture. By way of introduction, um, we just want to say before we begin that we are aware that in the time we have today, we can't do everything. Um, when, when you throw a topic like sexual brokenness on the table between uh, issues of gender identity, uh, same-sex attraction, uh, those who have been victims of sexual sin and abuse, uh, a culture that um, that promotes a, a view of sexuality that is radically different than the scriptures. We know that we can't do everything. Uh, and we also know that we can't please everyone. If we are faithful to God's word and to the gospel of Jesus Christ, then hopefully everyone will be disappointed at some point in this seminar. Uh, And finally, uh, we know that we can't finish the discussion. Uh, We hope that we can springboard for you and your churches, your sessions, your presbyteries, ongoing conversations uh, regarding faithfulness to God's word and compassionate and gracious ministry in a sexually broken world. Uh, And so our goal is to be biblically faithful, theologically helpful, and most of all, graciously and compassionately pastoral. Uh, We don't know you. Uh, We don't know where your heart is today. You may be struggling personally. You may be walking alongside those who are struggling with sexual brokenness in your family or your church. Uh, You may be confused about the best way to speak um, faithfully and compassionately. And so uh, as three pastors, we're going to try to be pastoral most of all. Uh, Let me open us in prayer and then we'll uh, begin our discussion. Heavenly Father, we lift up our time to you this morning, and we pray that uh, your glory, the glory of our Lord Jesus, uh, would be uh, manifest among us, that your word uh, would guide our thinking and our feeling and our doing uh, in terms of pastoral ministry, 
uh, the ministry of the church in a sexually broken world. Uh, we pray, Father, that the church would be built up uh, as a force of truth and grace, that uh, the kingdom of darkness may be pushed back, that the kingdom of grace may advance. And we all long for the day when the kingdom of glory will be uh, right before our eyes. But until that day, Lord, give us grace and truth uh, to minister faithfully. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, to introduce you uh, a, a little more to the members of our panel today, our, uh, our, our kind of opening question for the, the three of us is, uh, who are you and how is it that you come to this discussion? Uh, how, how is the sexually broken world uh, related to your personal life or ministry? And so, uh, Pastor Strain, if you'd uh, begin for us. Thank you. Uh, my name is David Strain. I'm uh, a local church pastor, and so... A great deal of my uh, concern for this will be shared by many of you, and that is as a pastor seeking to faithfully pastor the flock. I'm very aware, as you will be too, of the scale of the cultural challenge uh, right now on this issue. And so I, I want to, to think clearly and speak clearly and love well and shepherd well God's people as they wrestle with questions of sexuality and sexual sin. Um, in my own story, uh, I was raised in a non-Christian family. My brother, who I love very much, um, is uh, self-identifies as gay, does not make any profession of faith in Christ, is living a gay lifestyle in the UK. Um, and I was, uh, I trained as an artist, went to art school, and so perhaps not and so, but nevertheless, many of my friends at art school were, would self-identify as, as homosexuals. And so I have, I've had to think about this subject and try to respond with uh, love and boundaries. Uh, I'm still in process. I, still, I, want to, I want to continue to do that well and, and grow in my ability to do that well. But that's, that's sort of where, I, where I'm at and how I come to this. Thank you. Tim? Well, good morning. My name is Tim Geiger. I am the executive director of Harvest USA, a ministry which uh, many of you know we have special ties to the PCA. And uh, I bring uh, also a personal note to the ministry that I do at Harvest USA. I went to Harvest USA myself as someone looking for ministry 19 years ago. Uh, at that point, I was a young man of about 30 who had been struggling with same-sex attraction for about 20 years and was convinced at that point that uh, the church uh, really had no answers for me. Uh, the Lord used the ministry of Harvest USA to not only uh, give me practical help in walking in repentance from uh, my sexual sin, but the Lord used Harvest USA to really give me a right view of God and of his church and of my role in it. Uh, and uh, I, I really see uh, that season that began 19 years ago and continues to this day uh, as uh, the, the time when the Lord really began to mature me in faith. Uh, my passion is to see the church become a place that is able to manage the tension between speaking the truth and speaking the truth in love. Because there are many, many people in our churches, in our PCA churches, who experience same-sex attraction and do it secretly, do it silently because of fear of exposure. There are people in our churches who are dealing with questions about their gender and they do it secretly and silently because they're afraid of exposure. And I, I deeply desire to see our churches be a place where those folks can come forward and find help and mercy in their time of need. Great. Thank you, Tim. And my name's uh, Alan Edwards. I'm a teaching elder in the Pittsburgh Presbytery. Uh, in many ways, I'm a son of the PCA. I came to faith under, under the ministry of Harry Long at the Sycamore Presbyterian Church outside of Richmond, Virginia. Uh, my family helped to plant a church in the 1990s outside of Pittsburgh. Um, and today I uh, pastor 
another small uh, rural uh, congregation in the Allegheny Valley, north and east of Pittsburgh. Uh, I started, uh, I realized at about the age of 15 or 16 that um, there was something, well, at the time I thought something wrong with me. I'm, uh, as a kid, struggling with uh, homosexual feelings, same-sex attraction. The scripture verse that stuck out most clearly to me was from uh, the book of Leviticus that reminded me that, uh, that I particularly was abominable. Um, after years of uh, struggling to maintain on the outside a, a really good Christian identity, you probably had that kid in your Sunday school class who knew all the answers and judged the other kids who didn't. That was me. Um, but on the inside, there was this, uh, this broken, dirty secret. I, I went to a Christian college, and I couldn't maintain that strong Christian identity uh, because all the other kids there were better Christians than I was, and they played the guitar and frisbee. So through college, I really wrestled first trying to uh, marry a homosexual lifestyle with Christian faith, and when I was convinced and convicted that that wasn't possible, tried to reject the gospel. Uh, apologetics around the uh, resurrection of Jesus Christ had me pinned uh, like Jacob wrestling with the angel, and I walked away with a limp, uh, convinced of the truthfulness of God's word, its authority over my life, uh, but with very little hope or joy for how I was to then live. Um, it was in 2006, 2007, after years of counseling and therapy and um, wrestling with all of these things through high school and college, uh, that I sat down with the man to my left, Tim Geiger, who uh, really confronted me for the first time that this, that, that what I was going through was in some senses much more simple than I thought it was. It was a faith and repentance issue day in and day out, believing the gospel and seeking to walk in repentance. And so uh, for the last five years, I've four years, I've ministered in a PCA church alongside uh, my wife and now my son. And, um, and we're here today to talk uh, about uh, this, these questions, not just around same-sex attraction, but sexual brokenness broadly. And, and, and by way of transition, uh, we, we, we kind of want to move in concentric circles outward. Uh, we want to be theologically helpful, uh, but we also want to talk about how we minister to the people in our pews who are affected by or struggling with sexual sin. And then we also want to talk about how we engage the broader community and culture. So, so to begin um, in this first discussion of how to be theologically helpful, let me, let me just share this about my own journey. Um, I couldn't marry homosexuality with Christian faith, so I, I tried in a season of my life to, to differentiate between uh, what I was doing, the ways I was struggling uh, acting out in secret um, with, with, with God's word, and, and at one point in my journey, believed that uh, it's okay to uh, have these natural inclinations. It's just not okay for me to act on them. And it wasn't until I was uh, studying the Ten Commandments and was confronted by... This is a PCA General Assembly, so I think I get five points if I mention Calvin. Um, studying Calvin on the Tenth Commandment that I realized there was something fundamentally... It, it, that my, my sin, my guilt, wasn't just for what I did... But uh, it was for those natural affections that, that seemed to spur up spontaneously in me. Uh, and so that's all to say that as someone who's been in the church, in, in, in the pews of PCA churches for 20 plus years, I've struggled to understand theologically how to think about sexual orientation, uh, gender identity, and, and those sorts of things. So let me throw it to you men. Uh, how do we... Uh, in what categories? How do we communicate? How do we think theologically about sexual brokenness, sexual orientation, and, and the panoply of issues here? Tim, would you start us out? Sure. And uh, probably the logical place to start is to go back to what God's uh, intent for sex and sexuality is. And, and there's a, a manifold intent, but I think we can summarize it by saying that God intends uh, a husband and a wife to uh, engage in sexual intimacy as a way to particularly uh, image his glory in the world and as a way to bond those two spouses together in a, a unique way. Uh, we see many uh, images 
uh, in Scripture, many allusions uh, that connect marriage uh, to our relationship with the Lord. And we understand that marriage, among other things, is an analogy uh, for our relationship with Jesus Christ. So uh, I, I think that there are, are many, many respects in which sex and sexuality are meant to uh, point us in very dim ways to the intimacy that we have with our Lord and Savior uh, and the intimacy that the members of the Godhead have uh, among themselves in the Trinity. So when we take sex and sexuality out of that holy context and we say these are just biological desires and biological forces uh, to use however I want, I think we do uh, grave damage to, uh, to God's intent and to the way in which uh, we would rightly uh, experience the benefits of engaging in sex. I think as well that uh, we, we also do violence to the gospel when we say that what I do has no consequences. Uh, the Lord tells us that uh, there is no way that we can play with fire and not be burned. There's no way that we can engage in sin and not have it uh, noetically uh, damage our ability to understand God and be in relationship with him and be in relationship with other people. So I, I think we need to look at the, the selfishness that is at the core of all sexual sin, whether it's same-sex or, or heterosexual, uh, as being something which is uh, at, at odds with the gospel. David? I, I think some of the challenge we have here has to do with the categories that, that we use. And so words like orientation, while very much part of the common parlance in, in the culture, um, are, are hard to define well, and it, it's not easy to integrate that word into our existing theological system and our theological categories, it doesn't entirely line up. Um, and so often we, we struggle to answer the question, is what is orientation? What is a sexual orientation? Is it a freestanding um, substance, this thing? Um, what is it? And is it sinful? To be, to be, to to feel oriented towards same-sex attraction, is that inherently sinful, as you said earlier, Alan, or is it is it only what I do with that attraction when I experience it that's the problem? And and I th I think often we respond to that with an instinctive desire to address behavior and a fear that if we are too forthright in saying that sin adheres to the roots of our personhood, right to the core of who we are, that we sin because we are sinners. We fear if we say that, that we somehow are excusing sinful behavior. Yeah. Um, and, and that we are, we are so thoroughly condemning someone that they will be repelled and not want to continue the conversation because they will hear us saying, you are telling me that I am bad as a human being. <laughs> to which the answer is, yes, I am. <laughs> Amen, right? And, and me too. <laughs> and that, 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 actually the truth is that, that we are thoroughly sinful. We sin because we're sinners. And, you know, so reformed anthropology, the, the reformed doctrine of man, says that not only the fruits of our, of our biases are sinful, words, thoughts, and actions, but the biases themselves, uh, insofar as they incline towards sinful things, are sinful and guilty. So, so, again, categories are important, and the language that we use is important. Often we talk about sin, and we use the language of brokenness, and that's important language, and that is part of a larger biblical presentation of sin and its consequences. But it does, we, there is a temptation, I think, to collapse the whole doctrine of sin into brokenness, and that allows us to, 
to sort of dodge the question of guilt and shame. I want to say, no, we need to face the sinfulness of sin in all its thoroughgoing, pervasive horror. Because unless we do, we will not understand how radically we need grace or how extravagant the grace of God in response to our sin really is. We'll think that in response to same-sex attraction, what we're dealing with is behavior modification only. And so our solutions solutions will mm-hmm. be um, will be similarly superficial. Actually, the answer is a lifetime of, as you I think you said earlier, repentance and faith, turning from sin to Christ, clinging to the gospel, uh, striving for obedience, living within the community of the church, um, seeking to be faithful in the context of fellowship with like-minded and faithful believers. And, and staying in the fight every single day till Jesus comes or we go to be with him. Um, and, and facing that with humility and honesty is the key, I think. And, and, I, and I appreciate your, your phrase, the sinfulness of sin, because it has a, I think you said this to me personally, privately the other day, it has a leveling effect. Um, I think we want to put uh, sexual sin or sinful responses to, to um, well, sexual sin, we, we want to put it in a category all its own. Uh, that we, it's something that we theologically have to deal with differently than we deal with other things. And in one, in one sense, that, that helps us separate ourselves from it. I'm not like that. It's over here. I'm over here. It's over there. I'm over here. But, um, when Packer, uh, J.I. Packer writes about the 10th commandment that, that God, in, in saying thou shalt not covet, God moves the searchlight of the law from motions to motives. And so, and so everybody falls under the, the condemnation of this commandment, of the 10th commandment, because, because in it we are reminded that all of our natural affections and desires for anything, any, any, any seemingly spontaneous or natural affection or desire for anything that God has not given us is covetousness. It is, it is wanting something that God has said, you can't, this isn't, it's not yours, I haven't given it to you. If you want it, not, not, not if you ruminate it, not if you uh, dwell on it, but, but if you naturally desire it and want it, you fall under that. And, and that has a great leveling effect because that means my struggle with homosexuality is not all that different than someone else's struggle with uh, uh, doubting their, their God-given gender identity. It's not that different than my friend who wrestles with greed or pride or anger. We're, we are all facing the same condemnation, which means we're all facing and we're all, we all need the same grace. I mean, I think that that's uh, Jack Miller's little dictum, cheer up, you're all worse than you think you are, which must mean the gospel is better than you thought it was. Right. I, that, that's the boat we all find ourselves in. Um, as, we've, as we've talked theologically for a moment here, and, and I, I don't want to push us past it if we're not ready to move past it, but, but I think one of the concerns that's been expressed to me by other folks who are, are struggling with same-sex attraction or, or like sin struggles is that in our zeal, th- there seem to be two things that the church is doing. One, we are either zealous to speak the truth and make sure everyone knows where we stand, or two, we're so zealous to bring the lost to the gospel that we, we shade or hide or color or uh, even compromise the truth in order to do that. Um, how, how can we compassionately minister to people in our congregations who come to us for, for ministry? Uh, and, and how can we be compassionate and gracious and at the same time faithful? Do you men have any counsel on that? Or, or uh, how would you speak into that question? How can we be faithful and compassionate simultaneously? I, uh, I would tend to think that our best answer to that comes from our Lord's own uh, response to situations like that that he found himself in uh, pastorally. When he encountered people who were sexually uh, broken, engaging in sexual sin, or who were uh, engaged in any other kind of life-dominating sin pattern, he, he chose to engage them. He chose to speak with them and to meet them where they were. Uh, and as a matter of fact, if you go back and you look at uh, several instances, instances, instances in Scripture, uh, 
our Lord was criticized for doing that. When uh, the same day that he called Matthew to be a disciple, he had dinner at Matthew's house and the Pharisees uh, went and spoke to the disciples and said, well, your master is sitting down at table with sinners and tax collectors. And Jesus said, uh, hearing them, he said, well, don't you understand that um, I've come to show mercy? Don't you understand that it's not the well who need uh, a physician, but the sick? And, uh, and I think that we need to have that same sense of passion to engage in conversation, to engage in relationship with people who do have differing worldviews, whether, whether they profess to be inside the church or outside the church particularly, I think, if they're inside the church, because then they call themselves brother and sister, and we have a need to engage with them. And if we, if we observe that they are living outside the pale of orthodoxy in, in not uh, accepting uh, all of Scripture as true and authoritative uh, for their lives, I think we need to confront them on that in love and, and hold them accountable. Uh, I, I think that uh, a lot of times, particularly in our modern culture, we're all too ready to agree to disagree uh, on things that we consider inconsequential. And yet, uh, those seemingly small matters have uh, significant consequences later on down the road. Uh, so I, I think in, in particular, uh, the, uh, the question, is it okay to call yourself a gay Christian, is something that we really need to think about uh, as pastors, as elders, as, uh, as ministry leaders in churches, but it's something we also need to think about as a denomination. Uh, there are so many folks uh, in this denomination and in the larger Reformed and evangelical communities uh, that would say, yeah, there's no problem calling yourself a gay Christian, and here's why. And, and uh, I, I personally don't believe that you can do that with integrity, uh, but I, I think that just saying that and just pointing out proof text in Scripture isn't really helpful and isn't going to win the battle. I think we need to engage in conversation, get to know uh, why those folks say the things that they, they strongly and passionately believe, uh, and then through the opportunities that come from fellowship and showing grace and mercy and pleading with them uh, and praying for them, I, I think we just need to see what the, what the Spirit will do. The Bible compares the church to a house. If that's the case, the PCA Administrative Committee is the plumbing of the church. Its work is mostly hidden from view, and you don't appreciate it until it breaks. The AC provides churches, presbyteries, and the assembly with the expertise and action needed to keep their ministries moving forward. They don't set the agenda for the PCA. They just make sure its agenda is accomplished. Their vital work depends on generous churches and individuals like you. Learn more about them at PCAAC.org. Yeah, part of the answer to the question, how do you speak the truth in love or how do you maintain boundaries with compassion, is, is, is really not complicated. Compassion is not difficult. It's not hard. It's not com there's no complexity to it. You do it by doing it. Be mm -hmm. compassionate. Uh, uh, now, sometimes people will say... We don't, we don't need a study committee on compassion or... I mean, I'm Presbyterian. I need like four motions before I'm allowed to be compassionate, I think. Good for you. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> um, sometimes people will say we must speak the truth in love. And it's not loving not to speak the truth. So I can be as mean and as hard and, and sort of thump the pulpit and yell abomination. And that's love because I'm speaking the truth. But I think, I think we do have to attend to our tone. And um, I, I, so I think we have to say hard things without pulling our punches. We need to use Bible words and Bible ways when the text requires us to do so. But we also need to show the whole, the whole story and remember that the medium is the message. How you say what you say contributes to the content of what you say. 
So, so uh, if I say something that is hard and weighty, I ought to have affections that correspond to the weight of that truth. Mm. You ought to see me feel it as I hope you will join me in feeling the weight of that truth. Uh, and I can't stop there when I point out the sinfulness of sin or the sinfulness of sexual sin in particular. I also have to point out the glorious hope of grace and mercy we have in Jesus. And there ought to be corresponding affections in me that is visible and audible in my tone and manner that communicates. Um, But also, we're called as a church, not just as pastors and teachers, to, to address this. The church must address it. And it does so not just by the things that it says. As Presbyterians, we're awfully wordy. And I'm probably the guiltiest man in the room of being wordy, as you're beginning to discover. Uh, but, but the way we live together as a church speaks profoundly. And that really is the, I suspect, where some of our greatest challenges lie. How can we be fellowships? How can we be uh, assemblies of the people of God that, that hold on to biblical boundaries while recognizing the, the, the depth of the struggle and, the, and the, the reality of the wounds many people bring with them as they come to our churches on this question of sometimes, sexual sin. Sometimes wounds that people in our, in our camp have inflicted. Sometimes that we've inflicted and sometimes that our main response to them is the yuck factor. It's a, it's a, it's a, a visceral disgust that is often unthinking and, and is rooted in, in, in a sinful prejudice. Um, that I, do, I, I find you disgusting, um, which really is a way of minimizing my guilt and sin and maximizing yours. So I place myself on a higher moral plane than you and feel justified in dismissing you. Mm-hmm. So I'm being loving by denouncing you. That way I don't have to touch you or be near you. And, and actually what we need to do is precisely what we see our Savior do with tax collectors and sinners who would eat with them and be with them and speak the truth to them and call them to repentance and yet not withdraw but press in uh, with, with grace and patience. Tim, I saw you flipping in the scripture. Was there, uh, as 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 uh, David was talking about tone and and um, and uh, the the media being also the message. Was there something that you wanted to bring to light? Uh, there is, and just one passage that uh, I've been meditating on as I've been preparing for this morning is First Peter three fifteen, where uh, the Lord tells us through Peter that we need to be prepared to to give a defense for the hope that we have, and yet we need to give that defense with gentleness and respect. Uh, And uh, he's talking here specifically about speaking to outsiders, but I think that we offer it with gentleness and respect both to outsiders and people who profess faith. And I've I've been criticized for saying this before, uh, but in Ephesians 4, Paul says that we need to speak the truth in love to people who profess faith, brothers and sisters, but I think that we also need to offer that same charity, that same generosity uh, to people outside uh, the church. One, uh, one, one thing in particular is, um, I'll just give you a, a brief anecdote from my own life. We, uh, we live in a suburb of Philadelphia and there was a, a house next door to us that was vacant for a couple of years. And I have a 12 year old daughter and we were praying that the Lord would uh, put a family in there with uh, a girl whom she could befriend. Uh, and lo and behold, the Lord put a family there and it was two men who were married. And um, I thought, well, Lord, this is interesting. And uh, so what, what uh, my wife and I decided to do is we need to form a friendship with these men. Neither of them professes faith. Um, they know what I do, working for Harvest USA. They know that I'm a PCA teaching elder. Uh, and so that first couple of interactions was very, very awkward. Uh, really? Put it mildly. Yeah, yeah. Um, the same kind of awkward that uh, often we just want to avoid mm-hmm. by doing what David said and just keeping other people at arm's length because we think that they are particularly offensive or particularly messy. 
but we have found uh, that it has blessed not only us to reach out to our neighbors and to uh, include them in our family socially by inviting them over for dinner, by inviting them over for uh, just to sit on the porch on a summer evening to talk with them. Uh, we, we are demonstrating to them that you can be a follower of Jesus Christ and not hate uh, people who are outside of the, uh, the, the, the panoply of orthodoxy. I appreciate you, Tim, uh, drawing our attention to, to those outside our, uh, our covenant community. But just uh, one, at least a couple more sets of comments on ministering to those inside the covenant community. Um, as, a, as, the, as the token millennial on the panel, of course, I crowdsourced this seminar. Uh, I took to, Some of us don't even know what crowdsourcing is. It's Twitter. Um, and, I, and, I, and I put the question out there, uh, you know, if you are a man who struggles with sexual brokenness, or if you're a person in the church who struggles with sexual brokenness, um, what do you need to hear from the church? And I was, I was particularly looking for folks who are, who are walking uh, faithfully, uh, submitting to God's word in these areas. And some of the things that came back to me from, from members of our own congregations, students in our colleges and seminaries, um, they, they wanted to remind us uh, that uh, if we want to be compassionate and faithful, then we need to be faithful to God's word when it comes to the doctrine of sanctification, uh, meaning that uh, marriage... Uh, does not equal uh, holiness, and uh, general heterosexual attraction isn't the same thing as repentance uh, from from a homosexual or or uh, some other sexual broken sexually broken worldview. That that we need to hold out godliness, um, Christ likeness, as Paul says. It, you know, I would prefer that you remain as you are. And to, for, some, for some people, that's going to mean faithfulness and singleness. And for some people, that's going to mean faithfulness in marriage. And, and that neither is, uh, is inherently better. For us to say that one is inherently better than the other is to say that, uh, that, that the Lord who remained unmarried was somewhat, somehow less than a, a Christian in the 20th, 21st century with a white picket fence, a wife and, and two children. So, so they need to hear that, that the goal is, is godliness. The goal is holiness. The goal is grace and love and truth, not um, some particular life station. Uh, one of the other things they asked or, or, or commented on, they, they need for the church to be faithful and compassionate. They hope that, uh, you use the phrase yuck factor, David. They, 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 folks have said to me, and I, and I feel the same way, that the, that the church would be a place where uh, confession of these kinds of sins or, or on the opposite end, for folks who have been the victim of sexual brokenness, someone who has been assaulted or abused, that the church would be a place where it's safe to confess that suffering, to be open about that suffering, and to not be uh, treated like a leper because you've either sinned or struggled this way or you've uh, suffered that way. Um, and, and finally, that in order to be faithful and compassionate, uh, uh, I, I think it's important that we hold out uh, identity in Christ uh, as the as the goal uh, that we invite people to to lose the old man and become the new creation in Christ Jesus uh, that um, that that a particular set of struggles or experiences doesn't define you uh, that my identity isn't modified in some way uh, that I am a, uh, a a drunk Christian or a greedy Christian or uh, a homosexually offending Christian, but that uh, in Christ I'm a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. That that's the identity that we invite people into. And that we expect that for all of us, for every person in our pews, it takes a lifetime to learn to live in that identity. That repentance, that sanctification is a lifelong process and just like we would expect the man who struggles with anger to possibly struggle with anger, uh, ungodly anger for his entire earthly life, some men will overcome that and never be angry again, but some men will struggle their whole life. We shouldn't be surprised that when people struggle with sexual brokenness, sexual sin, uh, that they might struggle their whole life. And I, I think these are some of the ways resetting expectations and being faithful to our, our doctrine of sanctification and 
and the goal of the Christian life. Those are some ways that we can be both compassionate and thoughtful, but also faithful mm-hmm. as we invite sexual strugglers to walk in faith in our church. Yeah, and I, I agree. And just to kind of further nuance that, we do want to say that not all sin is equal. Mm-hmm. That some sins are more egregious by their own nature or by their several aggravations than others. Um, and we want to, for example, Paul in 1 Corinthians 6.18 says, flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. So he, he is saying there's, there's something, there's a unique set of uh, components to sexual sin, and, and there therefore needs to be so it's not right to flatten it out completely and to say sexual sin is just like any other kind of sin. There's a sense in which there's truth there. There's also a sense in which there's some specificity to this that requires attention and thought and, and, and wisdom. Um, also on the point about sanctification, many of us will struggle with besetting sins of, over the whole course of our Christian lives. That's true. But I want to say that sanctification isn't simply a, a staying in a, a stalemate, deadlock, yeah. in unmoving battle where, where there's no progress. The, the scriptural doctrine really does hold hope of, uh, I hesitate, I don't like the word victory, it has unhelpful um, theological theological baggage, but progress, movement, advance, that, that by the grace of God, I am not who I was. I'm not yet who I will be, but I will be that man by the grace of God. And, and there's enormous hope and comfort there for every one of us, especially for those who are wrestling with the baggage and shame of sexual sin and failure. Um, clinging to Christ, being a man or a woman in Christ, as that's our new identity by the gospel of the grace of God, means that the Lord promises us that we will not be who we once were, and we will be perfectly like his son one day, and he is working to make us that way, and we must stay in the fight because that's how that gets done. Yeah. Um, oh, good. Yeah, I, I think just at a very practical level, reaching out to uh, people in our churches and communicating that sexual sin of a same-sex nature is not uh, worse than sexual sin of a heterosexual nature. There, there are far more, uh, in terms of sheer numbers, far more people in the church who struggle heterosexually than homosexually, and yet we we always seem to point to homosexual sin as being uh, the worst sin of the two. Uh, and uh, I, I think that for the same-sex struggler, uh, and I count myself uh, among that population, uh, that was one of the reasons why I was so terrified to come forward and ask for help 20 years ago, because I was convinced that I was going to go to hell because what I was struggling with uh, was so much worse. I, I prayed that the Lord would actually give me lust for women the way that I had lust for men, because somehow in my the, the twisted economy of my mind, that was preferable. Hmm. Um, so I think that we do need to to say that sexual sin of all types is, is egregious to the Lord, is out of conformity, uh, not only to his plan for his people, but to his decreed will and his word. Uh, and that all people struggling with all kinds of sexual sin uh, need to seek the Lord and need to seek help from one another in order to walk in increasing faith and repentance. I, I think to the extent that you have people in your churches who have credible stories of struggling not only with sexual sin, but with other kinds of sin and of receiving grace to walk in faith and repentance, if they are able to share those stories publicly, whether it be uh, in a small group on a Sunday morning in some sort of recorded format on your website, uh, that can be a powerful narrative, a powerful testimony that the Spirit would use 
to give someone who is struggling sexually, uh, and I'm thinking particularly of someone who's struggling with same-sex attraction, to give them the confidence to believe that if the Lord has helped you in this way, perhaps he's also willing to help me. And again, the, the, the testimony doesn't have to be one of sexual sin. The, the, the typical same-sex struggler in the church who is struggling secretly believes that he or she is fundamentally different uh, than everyone else in the church and that God's grace does not apply to him or her in the same way as it applies to everyone else. So I, I think to the extent that we can offer a narrative that points people toward Jesus uh, and, and puts their entire hope toward him, that that's, uh, that's uh, to God's glory. If we can turn the conversation backwards for a minute, we've talked a lot about sexual sin and ministering to those who are struggling uh, with temptation or, or, or what have you. Can we, can we turn the question backwards and can we talk for a moment about how are we faithful to God's word and compassionate to those who have been victims of sexual sin, whether that's assault or abuse? Uh, how can the church be a safe place? Um, are there... Uh, Bring your pastoral wisdom to light, if you gentlemen don't mind. Um, because, because when we talk about a sexually broken world, we don't just mean uh, people who are tempted and struggling with sin. We, we have people in our pews who don't feel like the church is a safe place to talk about the shame of being sinned against. <laughs> I, it's, okay. Uh, sure, I'll take that one. Well, that's why I pointed to you. <laughs> David, because, because of your accent, we know that you always have something profound to say. Yeah, it's really hard because... Yeah, I, I say it makes up for a lack of intelligence. Um, uh, preaching through judges in a previous ministry um, dealt with... There's some pretty difficult material in the book of Judges. Um, the the rape of the Levite's concubine. So I, I gave the congregation warning a couple of weeks in advance. I said, I'm not going to avoid dealing with the issues, but I want you to be aware and particularly be aware of uh, this for your children. Uh, also be aware that there may be some people here who have been abused or assaulted for whom this will open very raw wounds. And I want you to know that, that we love you and that if this is too painful, um, we're not judging you if you have to be somewhere else on that particular Lord's Day. And we stand ready to speak with you and pray with you and meet with you. And so I, I, I preached afterwards. Uh, uh, one member of the congregation came to me with tears in her eyes and said, simply naming the horror of this from the pulpit, showing how the word of God is not afraid to talk about the worst and darkest things in human experience and human depravity was enormously healing for me because I was raped and I have never been able to talk about it. And now I feel like maybe I can. Um, I think we have to be willing to go to those places. I think there's a danger, and there's a danger with the question, the discussion about homosexuality for the church. This does not need to consume all our attention and energy. This is not the most important subject before us. This ought not to fill the whole horizon or be the entire focus of the church's ministry. Um, the gospel of the grace of God and his son, the Lord Jesus, needs to be the note we sound all the time, even when we're talking about these issues. Nevertheless, where appropriate, and when the scriptures address it, or perhaps in a focused and intentional manner in some forum within our churches, it might be good to name and address with tenderness and compassion, with plenty of forethought and warning, those realities as one piece of a, of a larger response. I, I do so appreciate what you, uh, what you say, David. And in terms of carrying that through in very practical ways, I, I would tend to think that 
it would behoove a church to to publicly say that this this church is a safe place uh, for you to be open and and transparent with your suffering. Uh, the reality is that so many people who have been sexually abused, and if, if you believe the statistics, which which I actually think are low, uh, one in four. Uh, women has been sexually abused, and one in six men has been sexually abused. Um, those people carry around tremendous wounds with them their entire lives, and and those wounds are often unseen by others because uh, so frequently the victims of sexual abuse, uh, I'm thinking particularly of childhood sexual abuse, uh, they are consigned by shame and guilt and fear. And so if you as a pastor or you as an elder or you as a women's ministry leader can stand up and say, we, we are, as, as your family, we are able to hear your suffering. We are able to sit with you in the midst of this and we are able to point you toward Jesus. Uh, again, I think that that honors God and that gives people who have been locked in a, in a closet of deep darkness and fear, uh, the, at least the potential uh, to come forward and finally live uh, in freedom from that fear and shame for the first time in their lives. I, uh, I, I think of what the Lord says through the prophet uh, Isaiah in Isaiah 57, uh, verse 18, where the Lord says that I have seen his ways, talking about Israel, I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. The Lord has seen everything that has gone on uh, in the history of, of mm. his people Israel. And he says, even though I have seen all of this darkness, yet I have compassion and I will heal. And how much more should we, knowing the grace and mercy of our Lord through Jesus Christ, uh, be willing to, to say that to our brothers and sisters? If, so, I, if I may, uh, I completely agree except to say that if we're going to say we're a church where it's okay to be open with our hearts and wounds, we better be a church where yeah. it's okay. Yeah. And, and that actually is not so easy. Mm -hmm. um, creating a culture where uh, people can be honest and real mm -hmm. is, is challenging. It's a hard, yeah. long, slow thing. It, it is definitely a culture change for many churches, for, for every church. Some churches are further along than, than others. Uh, and it requires, quite honestly, a, a serious commitment from everyone in this room uh, to, uh, to lead your church and to lead the other leaders in your church uh, through prayer, through training, through accountability to really become that kind of church. I think often that we're more comfortable with the church looking like a country club or museum than a hospital. And uh, when we are open and welcoming, not just on Lord's Day morning, but uh, in, into our lives, when we are hospitable and a hospital, uh, I think we are more closely approximating the scripture's view of the church. Um, Tim, your comments called to mind, I think, a truth and a um, command as we, as we walk alongside those who are suffering uh, the command is to weep with those who weep. And the truth is that there is a just judge who, though there are sins that uh, are hidden from men's eyes in this life, will be held accountable by a just judge at the end of all things. And there is, I think that there is gospel hope in, in the justice of God for those who, who have been violated. Um, that thought calls to mind this outer ring that we've, we've kind of been moving our way outward uh, as we talk about uh, these topics uh, to this outer ring of a culture that we live in where um, I don't know if, if the world has changed so much as um, our knowledge and experience and understanding of the, the, the world has, has changed, but uh, we live in a culture that is more and more hostile to uh, a biblical view of sexuality. Um, we live in a culture that is um, that is openly intolerant of of uh, orthodox understanding of, of of gender, 
and, and all kinds of issues around sexuality. But we also live in a culture, uh, particularly, that is lost, hurting. Um, it's, it's, it's hard not to think about uh, the, um, the tragedy. Tragedy is not the right word. Gosh, I, I don't have the uh, ability to just be polite anymore than the awfulness of, of, uh, of a mass shooting in Orlando earlier this month. Um, we're called to weep with those who weep, and we put our hope in a just judge who will, who will uh, rightly divide. Um, how, how can we pastorally and faithfully uh, engage a culture that is on one hand hostile at times, but on, another, on the other hand, hurting and broken and searching for hope. Uh, Tim, you started that conversation a few moments ago when you talked about your non-believing neighbors who moved in. Could you expand a little bit more on that? Not just maybe both how do we personally, but how do we as the church engage the broader culture around some of these questions? I'll, uh, I'll preface what I'm about to say by saying that uh, what I'm suggesting is neither easy uh, nor clean and tidy, uh, and you have no control over the outcome. Uh, all of that to say, I, I believe that since the Lord has called us to be salt uh, in, in this world, that it is the, the way that we're called to reach out to unbelieving folks in general. Uh, what we've done with my neighbors uh, in, in particular is on many occasions we have invited them over to our home. Uh, they've reciprocated and invited us over to theirs. And we've just engaged in conversation about uh, the, the same kinds of things that any neighbors would engage in conversations about. Uh, about the neighborhood, about family, about uh, politics. And as we've engaged in some of those discussions, uh, the, the, the nature of the topics that we discuss has uh, narrowed uh, to become a little more particular to talking about worldviews. Mm. And I, uh, I entered into this relationship not with the objective of converting uh, these two men, because that would be prideful and presumptuous and sinful on my part. I, I do not have the ability to reach inside someone else's heart and change it. Uh, because if I had that ability, I should begin with my own. Um, but my objective in this relationship is to love these two men and to show them the love and the mercy and the compassion of Jesus Christ through my relationship with them. And as I said in my seminar yesterday, I, I think that that is generally the medium, the medium of relationship through which the Holy Spirit will bring uh, people eventually to question their worldviews and bring them to faith. David? Yeah, I think, I think in many ways the answer to that question is the answer to the question, how does the church reach the world with the gospel? And I'm, I'm not sure there's a different answer to it than there was a year ago, five years ago, a hundred years ago, in the sense that Christians are to live faithfully for their master, for their savior, in their several vocations. Um, speaking the truth in love, as we've been talking about, giving a reason for the hope that they have to anyone who asks with gentleness and respect, prayerfully seeking opportunities to communicate the good news about Jesus, and then striving to live a life that uh, reflects what grace does when it breaks into a sinner's heart so that people can look at us and see a life that is coherent and consistent with the message we share. That's, that's it. It's not rocket science. And then in terms of how the church functions uh, together when we're a, as a gathered assembly, we've talked about tone, we've talked about the kind of community we want to cultivate. All of those are important. But I, I believe the central uh, uh, instruments that the Holy Spirit uses to gather his elect and to perfect his saints are the means of grace, especially the reading and preaching of the word of God. Yeah. And, and in some ways, the answer to that question is simply to say, uh, brother teaching elders, preach the gospel, uh, uh, be faithful in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all patience and teaching. 
stay in the word, explain the text with joy and gladness and trembling and awe, be passionate about Jesus, strive to live in a manner that is consistent with your calling and with your message. Um, and, and often as goes the pulpit, so goes the church. And uh, the, Lord, the Lord will ordinarily bless the means of grace for the conversion of sinners and the growth of the church. And that has always been the answer. And, and I, I don't think that's, a, that's a, a cop out at all. I think that is what we need to say. Um, it, it, let's not look for silver bullets. Let's not look for new strategies. Let's rather be faithful to the truth once for all delivered to the saints. Uh, uh, let's be men and women of God as, as the people of God together. Let's live faithfully for our master. Um, let's shine like stars in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation as we hold forth the word of life. The scripture reminds us that repentance needs to begin at the house of God. If we are concerned that we are living in a world that is in need of repentance and conversion, and we are not modeling faithful repentance and conversion within the church, how can we expect the world to know how to be faithful and repent? And so I, I think, David, to your point, um, when we say we don't need new strategies, but we perhaps need to recover some old strategies. Right. Uh, we've become very good. You know, my mama said, when you point the finger out, you got four pointing back at you. We're very good at, at times at saying what's wrong with the world and, um, and our sermons at times and our Bible studies and our conversations at men's breakfast are filled with the litany. Uh, I think uh, uh, Mr. Wirt last night talked about uh, the litany of the awful, like what's wrong with everything around us. And uh, we spend much more time on that than we do on uh, self-examination, repentance, and modeling it. it. Are your kids struggling? Parents, are you modeling repentance for your children? Are your churches humble and repentant? Pastors, are you modeling humility and repentance? It, we, can't expect, uh, we can't expect revival if the church is not uh, vital, and we can't be vital if we're not humble and repentant. I think, Tim, you brought up 1 Peter 3. Uh, I think that 1 Peter is the, is, is the letter uh, for cultural engagement for the church today. Um, be humble, honor your neighbor, honor the emperor, have a defense ready when asked. That, 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 that's my favorite part of that verse. When asked, uh, have a defense ready for the hope you have in the gospel. Uh, let your uh, let your conduct be such so that the world can't uh, condemn you for your sin. Uh, live blamelessly in the in the sight of the world, so that if they're going to hold something against you, the stone of stumbling will not be your arrogance or your your tone, but it will be Christ and Christ alone. Um, I think that there's, for me anyway, as a pastor, there's a lot of wisdom to be mined in in that first epistle of Peter for uh, engaging engaging the culture around us. I think we're coming uh, about to the end of our time. And so if, if you men would each just like to say a few words in closing, uh, and then uh, we'll, we'll wrap up here. I don't know if you have words for closing, but... Not really. I'm sure <laughs> I can find some being a preacher. You're a preacher. There uh, um, you go. <laughs> I think what I was saying a moment ago would be, would be my, my burden... Tone matters a great deal, and so let us let us speak with compassion and tenderness. Let's let us be clear on our own sin and need of grace as we minister to others. Um, but please let's be urgent and and eager to reach the world with an undiluted, uh, clear. Uh, 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 joyous message of redemption in Jesus. And I think if we will preach that message from our pulpits with vigor and, and faithfulness and urgency and a sense of burden, and if we will encourage our people prayerfully to strive whenever opportunity allows 
to proclaim that same message in that same manner, the Lord will bless. And, and those who struggle with sin, whether it's sexual sin or any besetting sin, uh, will, will hear the good news that Jesus has come to set the captives free. Amen. Tim? I, uh, I would urge the church uh, to have a burden for the men and women in the church right now who are struggling uh, with sexual sin and struggling secretly. Mm-hmm. I would pray that each one of you would be praying even today about ways that you can begin to reach out to those folks, to communicate uh, that your church is a safe place, that you are a safe person to talk to, uh, and, and pray that the Lord would make you that person. And I, I pray that we would all have the same burden for the sexually sinning and the sexually broken in our churches th- that the Lord has. Uh, at, at the end of 2 Corinthians, Paul is, is writing to uh, his hearers in Corinth, uh, and he, he, he's broken up about the prospect of seeing them again. And he says at the very end of chapter 12 and the beginning of chapter 13, uh, I fear I may have to be severe in my use of discipline uh, against you because many of you uh, have still not repented of the sexual sin in which you were engaged. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is at least the fifth time that Paul has talked with them about this and, and exhorted them over the course of many years to walk in repentance. And he knows of particular individuals who are still not heeding the call. And yet even what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 12 and 13 is another opportunity to repent. And so I pray that we would have that same burden to see men and women in our churches repent and live uh, as, as fully engaged, fully functional members of the body of Christ. When uh, Tim told me that my problem was that I needed repentance, I got angry because I didn't think that I'd chosen this. This was 10 years ago. But that was the best news I'd ever heard because it meant that, that the gospel spoke to my, my struggle too. I thought that I was in a different category. Uh, and I hope that that's what we do, that we as a church are more like a hospitable hospital where, where people who are struggling with all sorts of uh, disordered desires of the heart can come and find the truth and hope and healing. Um, I know that we as a denomination still need to wrestle through some big theological questions and the pastoral implications of those questions. We didn't have time today to, to exegete and to work through all of those. And dearly loved brothers in the faith, many, many maybe some in the room, would, would speak differently about some of these theological issues. But I think that we have a lot of work to do as a, as a denomination. Um, and I, so again, I hope that we've sprung new conversations and, um, and are opening a, a new avenues of ministry for you as you think through these issues. And I just want to close by saying, I'm not sure what's more uh, outstanding about this panel, that there are two men who've experienced same-sex attraction on the panel, or that there are no Southerners on the panel. So Alabama, it's been nice, but it's way too hot down here. I'm going to... I'm going to stop talking because Dr. Taylor's over there and I'm pretty sure he's in charge. Thank you. You can hear more talks like this by subscribing to the Gifts and Graces podcast. You can also hear more content like this by attending a seminar at General Assembly. They're free and open to the public. Find out times and locations by visiting pcaga.org. Thanks for listening to Gifts and Graces.